So we're going to begin with a brief review of the AMP of the GU system. Of course, as continence nurses, our primary focus is going to be on the lower urinary tract, the bladder and the sphincter. But we have to remember that there are certain types of incontinence and voiding dysfunction that can adversely affect the upper urinary tracts as well. So we're gonna do a quick review of the upper tracts and then we're going to focus on the bladder and the sphincter. So you already know the kidneys are located retroperitoneally and you're probably very aware of how important that is. It keeps them out of the zone if anything happens intra-abdominally. So if you have a bowel perforation, if you have a gallbladder perforation, anything that happens in the abdomen, there's no effect on the kidneys. Now looking macroscopically, and that's what you see on this slide, there are three major zones. There's the cortex, the medulla, and the renal pelvis. The cortex is the outer zone, and that's really where primitive urine production takes place. That's where you have the glomeruli and the tubules. In the medulla, that's the inner zone, and this is where urine is refined and concentrated. That's along the loops of Henle, and then dumping into the collecting ducts. And then the renal pelvis begins urine transport, and the renal pelvis is continuous with the ureter. So now let's look microscopically. Let's look at the workhorse of the kidneys, the nephron. And you know that each kidney has millions of nephrons, and you know that the nephron is composed of the glomerulus, which is a collection of capillaries surrounded by Bowman's capsule. You'll see that on the next slide. And the renal tubule, which is continuous with Bowman's capsule. So the glomerulus, as we'll discuss in just a minute, is where primitive urine is produced and the renal tubules, as we will further discuss, is where urine is concentrated and refined. Now, the other general fact that you already know about the kidneys is the critical importance of blood supply. So normally, the kidneys get about 25% of the cardiac output every minute. That means that they get the bulk of the blood. And we know that that's critical to urine production we also know that it allows us to monitor the adequacy of perfusion by looking at urinary output. So we're always watching to make sure that our patients are making enough urine. We know to be really concerned when they're not. And then if you look at it on the flip side, if the kidneys do not get enough blood flow, if you have an ischemic state, then you end up with damage to the kidneys, acute tubular necrosis. So now let's look at the critical functions of the kidneys. The one we always think about, of course, is urine production. And we know that the process of urine production allows the body to eliminate metabolic waste, toxins, and some drug metabolites. But in the process of making urine, your kidneys do a lot of other very important things. They maintain fluid electrolyte balance. They maintain acid-base balance. They help to regulate your blood pressure. And then additional functions are the production of erythropoietin and activation of vitamin D. So we're gonna talk about each of those in just a little more detail because these are the functions that can be lost if we have a lower urinary tract condition that threatens upper tract function. 
So let's talk about urine production. There are two major steps. The first takes place in the glomerulus, as you see here, and you already know blood is pumped into that collection of capillaries under pretty high pressure. Because capillaries are very thin-walled, when the blood's pumped in under pressure, large amounts of fluid are forced out of the capillary bed and into Bowman's capsule. But at this point, there's no refinement. There's no decision-making about what goes out and what's kept in. So the end result is a very high volume of what we call primitive urine. It's kind of like crude oil. It is not ready for market. It's not ready to be voided. And we actually make about 180 liters of primitive urine a day. Now that number alone underscores the critical importance of the second stage of urine production, which is concentration and refinement. You can imagine if you were voiding 180 liters a day and replacing 180 liters a day, all you would do all, you would do all day long is intake and output. There would not be time for anything else. So let's go to stage two. Stage two occurs along the tubular system, and as you can see from this slide, the tubules are surrounded by the capillary, so there's a constant exchange going on here between the tubules and the capillaries. Most of the water, most of the electrolytes, typically about 97 to 99%, are pulled back into the bloodstream, which protects you every single day from very serious dehydration. But the other really important thing is that the kidneys have the capacity to actively reabsorb anything you need and to actively eliminate anything you don't need. That's how you get rid of toxins, is how you get rid of drug metabolites. Once the urine has been converted from that 180 liters of primitive dilute urine into about two liters of concentrated, refined, ready-for-market urine, then the urine is transported from the tubules into the pelvis and then through the ureters to the bladder. Now let's just talk about a couple of things related to urine characteristics that are very important to us as continence nurses. You already know that the volume of urine produced daily is extremely variable. You know it's affected by how much you drink. You know it's affected by antidiuretic hormone and whether or not that patient is getting diuretics. The second really critical consideration is urinary pH. Now normally, urine is slightly acidic, typically between 4.5 and 6. And that actually is a very important characteristic because acid urine is hostile to bacterial growth, so it helps protect you against infection. Acid urine has much less odor, and acid urine is less irritating to the skin because, of course, the skin is also slightly acidic. Now, urinary pH is a really important concern for those of us taking care of patients with urinary incontinence because we want to protect their skin, we want to prevent infection, and we want to minimize odor. So most of the time, we want to encourage strategies that will maintain urine in that acidic range. So you want to know what factors impact on urinary pH. 
The first one actually is diet. So interestingly, our not generally good for us meat-based diet that is so popular in westernized cultures is good for acidic urine production. Vegetarian diets, which in general are much better, tend to produce alkaline urine. Having said that, you would never ever try to move someone from a healthy vegetarian diet to a meat-based diet just because of pH and actually it's the least important consideration. So does it have an impact? Yes. Is it the most important factor? No. The most important factor and the one in bold on the slide is the amount and type of fluid intake. High volume fluid intake tends to push pH toward the acid side. More importantly, water-based fluids tend to create more acidic urine. When urine is concentrated, when we're taking in limited amounts of fluids, it's much more likely to be alkaline. Milk-based fluids, citrus fluids, and carbonated fluids all tend to produce alkaline urine. So we encourage our patients, drink primarily water-based fluids. Don't drink a lot of milk, don't drink a lot of citrus fluids, and stay away from carbonated drinks, from sodas, which aren't good for you anyway. And then the third thing that can affect urinary pH is urinary tract infection. So some of the organisms that are most commonly implicated in urinary tract infections, such as Pseudomonas and Proteus, are known to split urea, produce ammonia, and create a more alkaline urine. So our interventions to help keep the urine acid, to keep, help keep our patients healthy, to protect their skin, we wanna make sure they're drinking enough. We'll talk later on about the fact that people tend to reduce intake when they're having problems with incontinence. So patient education, very important. We wanna assure adequate intake. We wanna assure the right kinds of fluid intake, water-based. Now, what about vitamin C? Some clinicians do recommend vitamin C, and if you're going to do this, recommend that they take vitamin C tablets, not that they increase their intake of orange juice or grapefruit juice, because ironically, increased intake of citrus juices like orange juice and grapefruit juice actually pushes the pH toward the alkaline side. I can't explain in detail. I can tell you it has to do with the Krebs cycle, which I've never totally understood. But actually, the metabolites of citrus juices are alkaline. So bottom line, if you want to use something to actively push the pH toward the acidic side, think about vitamin C tablets. Do not increase intake of citrus juices. And of course, you're always going to try to prevent urinary tract infection and you're going to monitor for signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection. So urinary pH, very important. Definitely expect some questions on that. What else? Well, you already know what color urine is. You know that it's normally amber. You know that we prefer it to be very dilute. What about odor? a huge concern for people with urinary incontinence. They're worried that if they have an accident, they're going to smell. 
and certainly we know that that can be an issue. Now fortunately, if you have dilute uninfected urine, the odor is typically minimal. So we go right back to, are you drinking enough fluid? What kind of fluids are you drinking? What can we do to help keep your urine in that acidic range? There are some other things that it can increase urinary odor. Some foods significantly increase urinary odor and probably the number one offender is asparagus. It all has to do with an enzyme that some of us produce and some do not. So some of you can eat asparagus and never even think about it again. But most of us eat asparagus, forget that we ate asparagus, go to the bathroom and you're like, oh my God, oh that's right, I ate asparagus. So if you have a patient who's incontinent and is concerned about odor, you want to review this with them. If asparagus causes increased urinary odor for them, you don't want them to eat that, at least not when they're going to be around other people. Some medications can increase urinary odor. The two chief offenders are vitamins and antibiotics. So a lot of times we'll tell our patients who are struggling with incontinence, take your vitamins at night. Don't take them in the morning because then you're going to have increased urinary odor all day long. So take them at night. Antibiotics, you're just going to have to tough it out because the antibiotics are critical. Specific gravity of urine, as you know, is extremely variable. It depends on how dilute or concentrated the urine is. We'll be talking about that a little bit more a few slides down the road. And you know the normal constituents of urine. You know that there's typically large amounts of water, some urea, some creatinine, your electrolytes, a little bit of mucus, a few red blood cells and white blood cells, no protein, and no glucose if your kidneys are healthy. Okay, so we've talked about production of urine. We've talked about the characteristics of normal urine and the considerations of particular importance to us and our patients. Now let's look at the other things that our kidneys do for us. In the process of making urine, our kidneys provide us with precise water balance. You don't think every morning, okay, now let me be sure I get exactly the right amount of water in. You probably don't think that much about what you're drinking throughout the day because you don't really have to. You know that your kidneys have your back. They'll make it all work. So here is how they do that. If you are drinking enough fluid under normal conditions, standard operating procedure, the kidneys produce dilute urine. But what if you're not getting enough fluid in? What if it's a crazy day at work and you had a cup of coffee in the morning on your way in and that is literally the last time you had a chance to drink anything? And now it's four o'clock in the afternoon or maybe seven o'clock at night and you're leaving. And when you get home and you go to the bathroom, it's like, wow, my urine is so concentrated. That is your kidneys protecting you. So anytime our fluid intake drops, we have sensors in our uh, renal system that sense increased concentration of our blood that triggers production of antidiuretic hormone. Antidiuretic hormone affects the membrane and the tubular system to make 
reabsorption of water occur. So normally, that water would be passed on into the urine, but when you're dehydrated, that antidiuretic hormone pulls the water back into the bloodstream because you need it, and your urine becomes concentrated. So ADH, a very important hormone, it protects us every day. It determines, should I eliminate that water? Should I hang on to that water? Now, interestingly, we produce more ADH during periods of physiologic stress. So you know that postoperatively, people hold on to fluid. And then several days post-op, they start to diurese. Same thing with trauma. That's the body's response. It's like, I don't know what's going on. It's kind of scary. I'm going to hang on to this fluid. I might need it. And then a few days later, it's like, okay, everything seems to be back to normal. I can release this fluid. Why is that happening? Antidiuretic hormone is pulling water back into the bloodstream. And then once everything goes back to normal, you stop producing ADH and that excess water is voided out. The other interesting fact about ADH, and a lot of you know this from personal experience, is that you cannot produce ADH if you have alcohol in your system. So you think what happens on Friday nights in a lot of places, people go out, they're drinking, what are they eating? Salty things, pizza, pretzels, chips, right? So you would think that they would be hanging on to water to balance all that salt. But know what happens when people have been drinking? They're peeing nonstop. There's a steady line to the bathroom. And then the next morning they wake up and they feel like, oh my God, what happened? Some camel spent the night in my mouth and my head is killing me. Dehydration. So alcohol blocks the production of ADH and then we pay the price. Continuing on with fluid and electrolyte balance, so not only do your kidneys provide you with precise water balance, but they also control the levels of sodium and potassium, which as you know, are the most important cations in the body. So sodium's the most important intracellular and potassium's the most important extracellular. Now, whenever your sodium level gets low, your fluid volume level gets low, or your potassium level starts to rise, you're going to produce aldosterone. And aldosterone works to level things out, to normalize things. So when you produce aldosterone, what happens? Water's pulled back into the bloodstream, sodium's pulled back into the bloodstream, potassium is dumped into the urine. So ADH helps maintain precise water balance, Aldosterone helps maintain precise sodium and potassium balance and also contributes to water balance because as you know, where sodium goes, water follows. What else do our kidneys do? Well, they maintain acid-base balance. We all know that acid-base balance is absolutely essential to health. We know that it's adversely affected by many conditions, including diabetic ketoacidosis, and many other metabolic conditions. Now, how is it that our kidneys protect us in terms of acid-base balance? They have the ability to hang on to hydrogen 
which contributes to the acid side of the equation. So they can either hang on to hydrogen when we need it, dump hydrogen when we don't. They can hang on to bicarb, which reflects the base side of the equation, or dump it. So let's say we have a patient who's diabetic, they come in, their glucose levels are sky high, they're clearly acidotic, they're confused. What are your kidneys doing to try to bring things back into balance? Well, they're dumping hydrogen and they're hanging on to bicarb. But if you had the reverse situation, then your kidneys would be hanging on to hydrogen and dumping bicarb. So again, they can move you back toward the center, move you back toward balance. The last three functions, blood pressure regulation, production of erythropoietin, and activation of vitamin D. Let's talk about each one of those very briefly. So you know that your kidneys contribute to blood pressure regulation in a number of ways. First of all, they help control fluid balance and Adequate intravascular volume is a key determinant of blood pressure. But also, there's the renin-angiotensin mechanism. So when your, blood, when your blood pressure is low, when your intravascular volume is low, when renal blood flow is low, because the kidneys are always protecting themselves, then you produce renin. And that, in turn, stimulates activation of angiotensin, which is a very important vasoconstrictor. So you see what happens, your blood pressure goes up and blood delivery is improved. Also, under low flow states, remember you produce aldosterone. And what does aldosterone do? Pulls sodium back into the bloodstream, pulls water back into the bloodstream, and that's going to drive blood pressure back up. So, major, major role in maintaining normal blood pressure. Erythropoietin, we know that erythropoietin is very important to red blood cell production. We know that patients in renal failure don't make enough and they tend to be anemic. A lot of us have given epigen or comparable compounds to compensate for the lack of erythropoietin. And finally, under circumstances of renal health, the kidneys improve absorption of calcium from the gut and its deposition into the bony matrix. You've probably heard or taken care of patients with renal rickets. So one of the adverse effects of renal failure is you don't absorb enough calcium, you don't deposit it into the bony matrix and your bones become very brittle. Okay, so we've gotten through the upper tracts. Now we're down to the lower urinary tract. This is the zone where we typically feel more comfortable. And this is the zone where our patients typically have the most issues. Before we go to bladder and sphincter, let's talk about the ureters, because the ureters are the final component of the urine delivery system. So once urine is concentrated in the medulla, it starts flowing through the transport system. You have minor calyces, major calyces, and then the renal pelvis. Then, as you can see from this slide, the renal pelvis is actually continuous with the ureter, so the urine flows through the renal pelvis into the ureter. Now, each ureter is about two to two and a half feet long, but only 0.2 centimeters in diameter, so very, very narrow. 
and it helps you understand why renal calculi are so incredibly painful because they're usually bigger than the diameter of the ureter and that means it is causing tremendous pain as that stone moves along the ureter. So we're going to go to the next slide to talk a little bit more about the ureters. They actually are composed of smooth muscle lined with transitional cell epithelium. Now for a long time I thought that urine transport from the kidneys to the bladder was essentially via gravity. That's not true at all. Because the ureters are comprised of smooth muscle, they're capable of peristalsis. And peristalsis is activated by distension of the ureteral walls, which occurs whenever urine flows into the ureters from the renal pelvis. So simply, the presence of urine in the ureters stimulates peristalsis, and then the ureters squeeze the urine toward the bladder. Sympathetic stimulation also um, increases peristaltic activity at the ureters. Now, I want you to realize, because this is going to be very important when we talk about neurogenic bladder a little bit later in this module, the ureters are a low-pressure system. So they're capable of peristalsis, but they do not generate high pressures. That means that if the pressures in the bladder rise, if there's a big problem at the level of the bladder and the bladder pressure goes way up, it blocks delivery of urine through the ureters because the ureters are a low pressure system. So for the ureters to function normally and for urine transport to occur normally, we have to keep bladder pressures low. And we'll talk about that a lot more as we go on. Now there's one other thing that's very important. Probably some of you, like me, originally thought that the ureters kind of connected to the bladder at the top, but that's not true. Look at this slide. The ureters actually penetrate the bladder wall at the base. There's a triangular area at the base of the bladder called the trigone. It's formed by the two ureteral openings and the one urethral opening. So if the ureters actually enter the bladder at the base, what protects us against reflux? Why don't we get urine moving up the ureters toward the kidneys on a routine basis? Why aren't we sick a lot? And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, the ureters penetrate the bladder wall at an oblique angle, and that provides some baseline resistance to reflux. But more importantly, you have an extra layer of muscle surrounding the ureters, it's the trigonal muscle. And that helps to maintain the ureters in a closed position. Peristalsis can push urine through, but the ureters are passively closed. More importantly, when the bladder contracts to empty, the trigonal muscle contracts and seals the ureters. So those anatomical and physiologic facts protect us every day from pyelonephritis. Okay, here we are to the bladder. We're all the way to the lower urinary tract. So you already know a lot about the bladder and you're gonna know even more before this course is done. Probably more than you ever wanted to know. So the bladder is composed of smooth muscle known as the detrusor. So throughout this course, 
instead of talking about the bladder, we frequently talk about the detrusor because we're talking about the bladder muscle. It's lined with transitional cell epithelium, frequently referred to as the urothelium, has a fixed base, but a very distensible body. So it collapses and then fills, collapses and fills. Normal capacity, as you know, 300 to 600 milliliters in an adult. And that urothelium, that lining of the bladder, very important because it normally prevents bacterial adherence and also keeps irritants in the urine from penetrating and affecting the bladder wall. That layer is known as the GAG layer, glycosaminoglycans. So GAG is a lot easier to say. Now we talked about the trigone, and you see it on this slide. It's the light pink, so it's that triangular muscle at the base of the bladder. It's an anatomical landmark, but also an important contributor to reflux protection. We will talk about this more in our next uh, class on voiding physiology, but if you boil it down to essential functions, what do we need the bladder to do? We need it to stretch readily and store urine at low pressures. We need it to contract effectively to empty. That's actually a very complex function and it's affected by many things and we'll talk about that. And then finally, the urethra. Now in the next class, we're gonna talk a lot about sphincter function, but here I'm just gonna go over the kind of the big picture in terms of anatomical features. So we all know that women are much higher risk for incontinence than men. You hardly ever hear a man say, don't make me laugh, I'll wet my pants. It's kind of exclusively a female line. Well, why is that? Look at just the anatomy of the male urethra and the female urethra. So the male urethra is long and curved, two distinct curves and about 23 centimeters in length. So you've got a lot of built-in resistance to leakage and to bacterial migration. In contrast, as you see, the female urethra is very short and straight. So it's typically 3.5 to 5.5. Females are much greater risk, therefore, for leakage and for urinary tract infection. And as we go through and we talk about the different types of incontinence and you look at people who are buying incontinence products and going to incontinence clinics, females definitely predominate. What does the urethra, the urethra do for us when it's functioning normally? If it's functioning normally, it acts like a very well-behaved faucet. So what do you want your faucet to do? When you open it, you want unobstructed flow. And when you close it, you want it to be drip-proof, leak-proof. That's exactly what we want from the urethra. Again, it's a very complex function. We'll talk about it in greater detail. So in summary, when you look at the urinary tract, you've got your upper and your lower tracts. The upper tracts are responsible for urine production. In the process of making urine, your kidneys provide you with elimination of metabolic waste and drug byproducts. They help maintain fluid electrolyte balance and acid-base balance. They help to regulate blood pressure. They also secrete erythropoietin and activate vitamin D. The ureters 
take the urine from the renal pelvis to the bladder. The bladder is then responsible for storing urine at low pressures and for effectively emptying at regular intervals. And the urethra is responsible for being a wonderful faucet, for maintaining closure when the bladder's in storage mode and for swinging wide open to, prov to provide unobstructed urine elimination. Okay, so that is it for this class on AMP of the GI tract. In the next class, we'll talk about voiding physiology. Thank you.